Hi, this is Mark from The Highlighter. And Anne with Annotations. And welcome to The Highlighter Podcast. Where we discuss the best articles and podcasts on race, education, and culture. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Highlighter Podcast. So good to be here with Mark. It's everyone's favorite episode, the banter episode. We're going to do a lot of banter, Anne. <laughs> That's the plan. Um, first off, let's talk about last month in the Highlighter newsletter and the podcast. It actually was a really exciting month on the podcast because we did our second month of focusing on a topic, and the topic was something we are vo- both incredibly passionate about in our professions, which is reading education. And we are going to be getting into that in a little bit. But first, I wanted to talk some about what was in the newsletter because they also had some of our most listened to and read articles and podcasts since the Highlighter newsletter has begun. Yeah, actually, number 140 of the newsletter has been the most popular um, newsletter in the entirety of the newsletter. That's incredible. And I... I'm not surprised. That's actually the article that I wanted to talk to you about, and we might as well do it here during banter. Okay, so I read a lot of books by Roxane Gay. She's phenomenal, and Hunger, oh, so much in it I could talk about, but I want to talk about the the fact that she had the surgery, because it's a huge part of the book about going back and forth about the surgery, the fact that she actually had it, and then she writes about it, and some of the words that she says are just so... Spot on. She is not trying to preach body positivity, but she's also not trying to say that the way to go is always to have uh, the surgery and just um, embrace the fact that this is what we do. Man, she was really vulnerable and also um, just as always a brilliant writer. So thank you for pointing that out to me. I don't think I would have found it if you hadn't put it in the Highlighter podcast. Yeah, this was the first, uh, this was the third time that she's been in the newsletter. And a lot of people have said that they've read it. And a lot of people have been shocked that she actually decided to go through the surgery mm-hmm. just because she's been saying over and over again that maybe she wouldn't have it. Do you, were you shocked? I was shocked, Um, not because she had the surgery, but because she talked about it, I guess. I don't know. It's such a private thing. The quote that stood out to me is she said, I worried that people would think I betrayed fat positivity, something I do very much believe in, even if I can't always believe it in it for myself. And so I think it wasn't that she had the surgery, but that she came out and said, I'm kind of embarrassed I had the surgery, but maybe I'm pride. I'm hopeful, at least, that things will get better and I'm embarrassed that I need things to get better. It was not the shock of the surgery. It was the shock of the, again, vulnerability. Yeah, and she hadn't even told her family, and she even put up this pop-up magazine on Medium with all these other voices as well, and I wonder if she knew that she was going to reveal this in this pop-up magazine. Mm. It's pretty intense, and I know that a lot of readers have gone to see her speak, Um, obviously a lot of readers have also read even more books by her than I have. And so I'm really happy that, that you really connected with it. Mm -hmm. Um, and you've been a big fan of hers for a while. Is that true? No, I was new to her this school year and it started with difficult women and I picked it up and I read the first couple of pages and I couldn't put it down. And so when I went to, that was short stories. So when I went to Hunger, 
it's so different because it's a memoir and I was just blown away that this is all by the same woman. She's yep. so talented and she does comic book. Like she does so much. Yeah. Well, I'm happy that you enjoyed an article in number 140. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing it with me. Well, you know, I have also been a huge fan of annotations. Did you know this? <laughs> Thank you, Mark. I mean, the thing is, like, I thought that I listened to some podcasts, but Mm -hmm. you really listen to them. Yes, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I don't understand, actually, how you read books and articles, and you also have time to listen, and then you have a job and and a family. I I just, I still don't (laughs) quite get that. It happens in part because I don't listen if I don't like it. Yeah. So I listen to the beginning of more episodes than I listen to entirely of. Well, one of them that I really liked, one annotation from this month was in 138, newsletter mm-hmm. 138, your, um, your annotation that, that was about podcasts, like teaching podcasts. Right. I mean, first of all, was that easy for you to find that one? No, it's again, just like I talked about last month when it was trying to find true stories of people first in their family to go to college. This month, I'm trying to find podcasts that focus on reading education, and they're not out there. And when they are, they're kind of warm and fuzzy. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of the education podcasts are just too, like, oh, another teacher martyr. Go, teachers. Mm-hmm. And it feels um, too cotton candy for me. But this one I was interested in, and I actually took issue with, because I want to hear what you have to say. They were touting this teacher as a success story because he has his students reading, but what they're doing is they're listening to a podcast while looking at a transcript. I don't know if I call that reading. Do you want to push back? What did you think? Well, it was very fascinating because I've actually worked with teachers who have used not just this approach of podcast as reading, but in fact use Serial, which this um, this podcast episode was which emphasizing. Which is so good. Like, oh, I'm it, not knocking Serial. It's well, amazing. except that there's murder and death and horribleness, and we're supposed to totally believe in the main character instead of perhaps the young woman who died, and, like, that's really oh, bad. Jeez, you're making me feel bad. Okay, yeah, there's that. <laughs> Mark? Well, you know, but yeah, so the title of the annotation, by the way, if you want to go back and check it out, is Does Listening to Podcasts Help Students Read and Learn? And yeah, it's a perennial debate. Like, is listening actually reading all the audible people out there? Yes, you have to have the transcript. Absolutely have to have the transcript. Um, And I also believe in reading live in class, like instead of this idea, as we've been talking about, of assigning reading and and, and making like, oh, I'm a rigorous teacher because I assign lots of reading that everybody fake reads. So I would say... I mean, how is it not the same as having an audio of Things Fall Apart or an audio of um, Trevor Noah, for example, in class? Like, is it any better or worse than than somebody reading a memoir or a novel? Oh, gosh. I don't... In my mind, it's the difference between a blog post and an article in the New York Times. Like, to me, a book is more thought out and therefore worth more time. But I, yeah, I don't know, because Serial is clearly very well thought out and built to be engaging and something that you really could debate. So maybe you're changing my mind a little bit. It just feels a little like cheating. I don't know. Well, I'm definitely a huge fan of podcasts in the classroom, but I don't know. I would agree with you. I don't know if it's like pure reading. And as I sort of get a little bit more experience, I've actually become a little bit more old-fashioned about what I consider reading in the classroom. I really want our students to be grappling silently. Hmm. It's. I understand that there's an oral tradition. I understand that read-alouds are important. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm getting more to this idea of what can we do 
um, without hearing it. So I'm all over the place, except to say that I'm definitely very happy that you chose that annotation in 138. Oh, thank you. And I will say, if you're paying attention to detail, the name of the actual podcast episode was listening to podcasts helps students read and learn. I rewrote it as a question. Does it help students read and learn? Because I really wanted people to actually pick up on that and get back to me and say yes or no. So if people want to go back and take a listen again and let me know, send us information to our highlighter phone number, and maybe you'll get into one of our future episodes. Do you remember that phone number? (laughs) That's why I'm pointing at you. Right. Okay. So it's 415-886-7475. 415-886-7475. Don't worry. Nobody's going to answer it. It's just a voicemail. (laughs) And so you can just say, hey, you know, I'm a loyal listener. I want to talk about this or that. Um, We're not getting a huge number yet, but maybe now just floods of people are going to be calling in this week. We, we'll see. <laughs> see. Okay. Banter check. Yes, we did it. I think so. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. I really did like a lot of the articles this week, so thank you. So we've been focusing on reading. We've decided we're going to stretch it out into another month. Why are we doing that? Because there's so much to uncover. It feels like even though we've done a whole month, we could probably do this for a long time. And I think it's partly what you just said, like reading is totally in the core of both of us. Mm -hmm. When we met, you know, so by the way, we were colleagues way back. And when we met... 2009. Yeah. So we sort of got to know each other a little bit as part of an interdisciplinary class for ninth graders. And we weren't totally 100% totally into our reading game yet, Mm -hmm. but now we totally are. So I think Mm -hmm. that's one reason. I mean, why do you want to do another month? There's so much more I want to uncover and talk about, and I want to talk to more teachers, and I want to hear about your work with Kindles, because I think that connects to reading education, and obviously I would love to talk to every expert out there as well. I just personally have a lot of questions and have found it helpful to talk to people about those questions who have possible answers. I really want to talk to you if you felt like you were able to do that. Last week, you got to talk to who you called was your teaching hero, and I was so excited for you, and I was kind of nervous for you because it was a really big deal. This is an article from 1994 Mm -hmm. that I have read, you've read, a lot of people have read, and it shaped something that I saw you do. So when we taught together, your last year at the school we taught together at was teaching ninth grade English, and you basically, tell me if I'm wrong, took Joan Cohn's article and said, I'm going to do that in my class and completely changed how you taught. Yes? Yes, it was Joan Cohn inspired, but it was also Donalyn Miller expi- uh, um, inspired. Is that the Redeside guy? Yeah, uh, no, that's Kelly Gallagher. Okay. Donalyn Miller was this other person who somehow got her students to read like 40 books in a year, um, which is a lot. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so yeah, yes, I mean. I know that. Yeah, so I do remember this. Um, it was after. Um, we did our world studies class together, and it was sort of identified that, especially at the ninth grade, our students really needed a whole lot more time um, reading. Um, there was a huge gap, and maybe the course that we used to teach no longer really met the needs of our students. And so our principal said, hey, can you like reframe this class? Can you try again? And I mean, I spent a lot of time over the summer. And I think fundraising or your own money because you built a classroom library, you had students doing a lot of choice reading. Did they read anything together? 
We did. I mean, so that was a huge, huge experiment. And so I went totally crazy big by saying, hey, kids, you can read whatever you want. And I actually didn't have as much structure as Joan Cohn did. It was so great to talk to her because she reminded me that I think in any independent reading program, you have to have structure. And I think that I was more influenced by, I guess, the the researchers that I just was reading right then. Mm -hmm. And so I sort of went maybe too liberal in my approach. And so the idea was, I just wanted the students to read at their level and have a whole lot of choice. And I was spending so much time trying to get books. I was trying to give the books out to the students and trying to encourage them. And there was a lot of success. But I definitely it was a challenging year. And I think it's because I went for broke. I and I said, you know what, I'm going to really be new. And I have this huge inquiry stance like Joan Cohn. Mm -hmm. But I guess I just went for it too much. Mm -hmm. And I think that I made some assumptions because I used to have, you know, lots of years of a strong reputation. I thought that just sort of like my being was going to take over when really the structure is what mattered. So what was it like to interview Joan Cohn? Was in the back of your mind any sort of, oh, I want to try this again or... I think she's sugarcoating. Like, what was it like knowing that you actually tried what she was talking about and then got to interview her? I, it was totally a dream come true to interview her just because, I mean, she really did inspire me. And then also just like that these people who are really famous are actually just real people just like, like I am. Mm-hmm. And... um It was really wonderful to talk to her, and it was also really wonderful to be reminded about how important inquiry is and how important writing is. Hmm. Um, I had no idea that she was just a regular person, even though she has multiple articles in the Harvard Educational Review. Mm -hmm. And no, it didn't get me thinking that I wanted to classroom teach anymore, but it did get me thinking about my Kindle program. Mm -hmm. And also just how can I really bolster, have more structure, and really promote reading um, in in my current capacity? But it also got me excited about maybe writing something um, again, just because we we each we all do good work, you know, listeners of the show, like you all do good work too. Absolutely. And I so what she did is that she was part of the Bay Area Writing Project, and she had a whole year in this cohort to sort of construct this inquiry, which led to this fifty-page article. And I'm like, I don't know if I can write fifty pages. Oh, you can write 50 pages. Well, You're a fast see. typer. <laughs> well, typing is different from <laughs> writing. Um, but yeah, it, it was great to, great to talk to her. Well, thank you for doing it. I really benefited from it. Yeah, thanks for listening to it. And then the week before, you went back in time a little bit with, do- with Dr. Arcy. I did. That was really exciting. Which, by the way, people have told me is their favorite episode so far in the Highlighter podcast. Wow, thank you. I mean, can you like take us back? Like... As far you sure you were I was, a student of hers. I was. I before teaching at the school I'm at now, I was a reading teacher at Treasure Island Job Corps. Look it up if you don't know about job corps. They're very unique in the United States. And I didn't know what I was doing. I looked up online that there was a program and that's how I went there. And I ended up moving to this school and continuing to get it. And um I did the first half of the master's literacy specialist program. So I didn't write the big paper. I just took the classes, and that's how you get a literacy specialist certificate. So that was the program. Dr. Arcee ran the program, and she also was a 
professor of one of my classes. And she remembered me in part because I think I'm one of the only high school teachers that's ever gone through the program. And so it was really nice to sit with her and have questions about secondary education and specifically what I'm doing now because the program was mostly about younger students. Yeah, and I remember when I first found out that you went through that program, and I I still want to do that because I'm totally jealous that you did. It doesn't I, exist anymore. I know. I, I looked it up, and I was like, oh, I guess I can't do that. Yeah. But so did that totally influence you and your teaching doing that program? I wish it influenced me more, to be honest. Interviewing her made me want to sit down this summer and just rethink every way that I teach, especially my A-Pre world history, because there's so much content and I get so focused on we need to learn this and this and this and this and this, all content that it turns into a lot of lecture and all the readings done for homework. And I just felt like I failed my program because I just turned back into the teacher I was before it. And I know how to teach reading and I know how to help students become better readers. And I kept running out of time and I would have it in my lesson plans that we would start homework together and we just ran out of time. Maybe if you listen to the podcast enough, you won't be surprised to hear I talk too much when I'm lecturing and it takes longer than I think. And then the research shows that lecturing doesn't really help students anyway. anyway so it was, it was invigorating, and it also made me really want to rethink how I'm teaching right now. Well, so is it also because you're teaching history and you have a social studies background that maybe you, re- you reverted in some way? Like, because you love your content and I you do. teach AP World. Yes. And you teach it well. And the Thank whole, you. And there's a lot to cover. <laughs> there's all of human history. So if, if they're all reading it, it might take like two or three times. Like you would. Yes. You well, might... the textbook's 1,200 pages and they finished it last month because now we're just into, now we're into a review book. So... It's a lot of reading, and some of them do read the whole textbook over the year, and a lot of them, I fear, cheat. <laughs> oh, it's hard to say it out loud. Um, yeah, some of them cheat. So do you think, though, that you might reconfigure your approach coming I have up? to, because the ones that I believe cheat don't do it for any reason besides they can't read the book. When I look at my PowerPoints, I realize I'm summarizing the reading for them, and a certain extent, so we never get to the conversation of the content. It's read the content for homework, hear me talk about the content for, content for classwork, and then just redo it again and again and again. And yes, there's other things I do, and we have primary sources and all of those sorts of things, but I just feel like I'm doing, and this is, I coach teachers, and I tell them this, and then I'm just as guilty. Sometimes I feel like I'm the hardest working person in the room, that I'm just like, giving students the answers. And in history, they're not as clean cut as I make them seem. And I really want to start having more discussion. And I want that discussion coming from reading, not from my interpretation of the reading, but them doing the reading and us going straight into discussion. It's going to take a whole school of teachers deciding that. And I think that if one... Oh, that's so hard to hear. Just tell me that I can just bulldoze ahead and change everything. And I don't need a school that... Does it too? All teachers, you can do whatever you want and you can get what you want. But in order for it to be easier, it would be nice if your colleagues did it too. I mean, imagine a class where people came in and did the strong start or do now, and then there would be some sort of frame. And then the primary way of learning was through various inputs like reading or maybe Mm -hmm. podcasting. And then there was talk about it. And then you could, as the teacher, sort of like highlight some parts. Right now, it's the total opposite. 
students give up, and then we may get frustrated with them for giving up, but we have actually scaffolded even before there's frustration. Right. And uh, I have so much to think about for this topic, but there's a method called Harkness. It's not too different from Socratic. Students here do Socratic. They succeed in it. I just need to transfer that ability to sit and talk about issues that they face into sit and talking about the Industrial Revolution, for example, because that actually can connect to issues that they face. And that rich, lively conversation, I mean, that's why I want to be a teacher, is to sit at that table with those students and help them learn to make meaning by themselves. So I think that was my main takeaway, is I got to do better. And I think that maybe each teacher should really sort of like, over the summer, just really think about, we're, we're always told, do everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, student, students learn in so many different ways, so let's just do a little bit of each way so that nobody gets good at any of the ways. Right. And I feel like if you are a reading person, then you can be more of a reading person. I wanted to ask you about one thing that Dr. Arce said. Yes. You asked a question about what if they don't get it, and she said the anticipatory guides and set. Do you remember that part? Mm-mm. Basically, she was saying that if students have trouble, you should offer context of oh, the reading yes. beforehand, mm-hmm. which is, I think, a lot of people saying is controversial now with Common Core. Mm-hmm. That in fact, students have to grapple cold with their reading, right. such that they sort of identify who's the audience, what's the overall main claim or the purpose. Did you find her, her answer sort of different than your current thinking, or did you agree with her? Well, the first thing I thought of was that you can go online and some teacher has put available to the world an outline of every single chapter in the AP textbook that we use. And there's been one, maybe two, I think just one student that I've let her in on the knowledge so and say, like, actually, why don't you look at this first before you read the book? Because she was really struggling. Um, because I wasn't doing enough at the beginning of the year. I told them like, look at the headings, look at the subheadings, look at the pictures, look at the maps, read first sentence of each paragraph, fill in where you need to don't read every word. Like I gave them all of these tools for reading and then I let them go. And I never told them each time they read what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. Just look for what it has and take notes. And so when I talk about it out loud, I feel kind of bad, but... It just means that we're in our process. I mean, yeah. you you just saying that actually got me thinking about probably one of my favorite years of teaching, not like the other year that we talked about. <laughs> but I remember um, teaching a U.S. history class where the primary text was Howard Zinn. I didn't know Zen. you taught U.S. history. Oh, it was wonderful. <laughs> yeah, it was right I'm before. learning so much. No, but it was a, a U.S. history and Howard Zinn, mm-hmm. people's history, was the text and not like the easier version. It That's the, incredible. And you know what? I somehow I think it's because they were a slightly higher reading levels, mm-hmm. but for some reason I sold it and they sold it to each other. And we actually went to see him at UC Berkeley. Oh, wow. You know, because he was still alive. Uh-huh. And and they still like they talked to me about it still. Like this was a book that they felt was really high level and then they did it. And I look back at about how I taught that class, and it was like it was a reading class. Yes, and I've actually thought if I didn't have to teach the textbook, I mentioned last time we bantered that Sapiens would be an actually an awesome book for an AP World History class. Like, let's read this and let's debate this because it actually is summarizing the major movements in human history just like the textbook. Maybe you have your next step. Ah! <laughs>
<laughs> so if you want to buy me 30 copies of <laughs> Sapiens, you let me know. <laughs> that, that book is quite a robust book. The paper in it is a little bit crazy. If you took a whole year to read it, then, then it would be okay. And the glossy pages are just part of the fun. Yeah. Speaking of ne- next steps... Should we talk about next steps? Yes. Like what this whole month is going to be about. It's going to be about reading, Mm -hmm. but what are we hoping to do? Is it okay that I just transitioned us? You did it beautifully. This next month, we've decided to continue with reading because we have a couple more podcasts in store that we couldn't fit into the month of May. And I'm really excited. I interviewed an elementary school teacher. So all those elementary school teachers out there know that that is coming. I know Mark and I focus on secondary And when it comes to reading education, elementary school teachers are the ones who really know what they're doing. So I will talk to her about the amazing things I've seen in her classroom, and I'm excited to get that out there. What are you doing this month? Well, I do want to try to do an episode on on the Kindle Classroom Project. Now, this that's not to say that there's going to be cross-pollination or that secretly I've <laughs> d- that we've done Okay, this. time out. For those that don't know, Mark has not only a full-time job and does the Highlighter Newsletter and podcast, but he has another side project, the Kindle Classroom Project. Project? Yeah. Is that what it's called? And actually, it's funny because it was that one year that I struggled so much that the Kindle Classroom Project started. Oh, I didn't know that. And it was because this kid, who I, I won't say the name, but this kid had his head down and totally I was exasperated. So I said, just here's my Kindle. Go ahead and read. And he, and he found a book, a uh, Sharon Draper book on it. And what? because he didn't, have, he didn't have to advertise which book that he was reading, and he could also bump up the text... He totally just, and then... I didn't know that. Yeah, it, it came from there. And then actually, it, it grew and grew from there. But I, I have found that this project is, by the way, it's like in a lot of schools now, um, it really solves the issue, one of the biggest issues that I had that year. And a lot of teachers have, um, which is, how do you have all the books? Like, how do you yeah. constantly buy books? How do you constantly build a classroom library? Um, the teachers in podcast number 34, mm-hmm. they're all teachers and they spend so much time just trying to get the books. And then what happens if more than one student at the same time wants to read a book? Can I push back on this? The same pushback I gave you in 2011 or 12. Yeah. Why can't we teach students to use the library? The we can't. S- the city library instead yeah. of like, we're going to kind of give it all to you and like, I got to get all the books that they want and I got to order it. Like, why can't we teach them to go find it at the library? I think it's a great point. And my hope is that this program actually gets kids back to the library. Unfortunately, the kids who have had long uh, respites or time away from reading, they actually have a negative orientation toward the Mm -hmm. library. It's supposed to be a public library, but it's not public to them. Um, There's issues Mm -hmm. of race. There's issues of fines that maybe they or their families have not paid. Um, They go in and they may feel like they should be themselves, and then they're shushed or they're told by a librarian. Now, now that's not to say that all librarians are stereotypically not so nice, but they have told me over and over again that the last time that they've been in a public library was so long ago. And one of the things is, at least in San Francisco, you never know if the libraries are actually going to be open. They all have different hours. Sometimes they're limiting their hours. It's actually a little bit better than in other places. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the reason. But I'm not trying to repla- replace libraries. Um, 
What's interesting is that you also, like, you believe in libraries, Mm -hmm. but you did something also to bring the library to students as well. Ah, you have a good memory. (laughs) Yes, each week I went to the library and I got books at the library that they had requested. Right. Or if it was more likely students that didn't know what they wanted to read, I could go to the library and pull five books for them and bring it instead of having to figure out a way to buy Five books that they may or may not like. Yeah, so isn't it interesting? So we have teachers trying to get physical books. You have my program, the Kindles, and then your approach, which was to bridge the library Mm -hmm. with where the students were currently, which is not having a library card or not wanting to go to the library. Right. The thing, though, is that... was my goal, though. That was when they were younger. That was freshman, maybe sophomore year. My goal was it was supposed to build up to them going to the library and getting their own books. It was the scaffolding that I took away, and I'm not sure they ever kept it going without me doing it. Yeah. And unfortunately, if you're a kid who has not read a book since fourth grade and you're in ninth grade and you all of a sudden trust your teacher enough to want to read a book, the book had better be there in the library. There's no three weeks of waiting for that kid. Yeah. And so I think that we've all just tried to approach it in different ways. Yep. I still remember a student who, he never read a book for me, and I kept bringing him books, and he said he wasn't interested. And he somehow found on the shelf Phantom Tollbooth, and he read the whole thing, and he said, get me more like this. Hmm. And he was Mr. Cool. I would have never thought to grab that book for him. So you just never know. I wonder, actually, if he had read that before. Oh, interesting. Because that's what I find out over and over again, is that students will read, reread a book from, their favorite book from third, fourth, or fifth grade. <gasps> that totally could have been it. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. You, did cracked, you, you cracked the code. I you, thought it was this beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> did you find a lot of books just like the Phantom Tollbooth? Well, I, I found things like Fantastic Mr. Fox. Like, he was a very low level reader. Mm-hmm. Um, and he wasn't interested in those. So that's why your guess actually might be correct. That is the only book I remember him actually picking up and I could tell he was reading it. I think it's really fascinating though that all the de- all these different approaches are just ways for there to be more reading. Um, in my current role, and I love where I work and the teachers are so wonderful, but uh, I do a lot of observation. And I would say that the amount of percentage of time where I can just go into a class and the students are reading. I won't say what the percentage is, but it's incredibly low. And I'm not even saying that reading has to be the primary way to deliver content, Mm -hmm. but I do believe that in every single class every day, no matter what class, there, there has to be reading involved. And until we do that, and it's easy for me to say because I'm not a classroom teacher anymore, but until we do that, of course the students aren't going to like it. Mm-hmm. We're in a whole society where there's not actually no more public reading, that only, as we've said, only the haves or the, the most affluent and the most privileged are reading, and they're reading on the side. Right. So anyway, that was my big soapbox <laughs> speech. <laughs> we can end the program good. <laughs> Mic drops. Right. So it looks like we have a lot more stuff to do. We have a lot to say on this topic, and I personally just have a lot to work out for my classroom. I really want it to be a class that they walk away readers. And that's a tall order for an AP World class because College Board is so good at giving me a lot to teach. Yeah. But isn't it wonderful, though, that when the students actually do read the entire textbook, then they've had that experience, and then the actual next year in college, even if they don't pass the AP Mm -hmm. test, they're going to go into college saying, you know what, I can do this. I hope so. 
teachers, if you're trying to teach reading and you have advice for me, please let me know. I would love any and all feedback. And I mean that sincerely. I clearly am really wanting to make reading education, again, a big part of what I do and not just something, oh, go to Anne, she knows some strategies, but go watch Anne teach. That's actually something I haven't mentioned, that when we, both of us are named as, oh, if you need to learn how to improve teaching reading, go to Mark or go to Anne. But at my school, I'm a teacher now, no one says, go watch her teach. Right. There has to be more of a lab experience like that where we can just try stuff and and also be observed. Um, This month also, in addition to the folks that we are already going to be hoping to interview and to have on the show, um, I want to put the invite out there for Highlighter listeners, not only to share your views, but also if this is something that you're interested in, you want to talk out your ideas on the show for everybody to listen to, um, come on the show. Like, let us know. Um, it could be about what you're trying in your classroom. It could be connecting to one of the articles um, or one of the podcast episodes in the newsletter, um, including like if you have used podcasts. So give us a call. I'll say the number again, 415-886-7475, and we'll chat because we really need to figure this out. Mm-hmm. Let me know if I can come observe you because you are the teacher I need to learn from. Thanks, everybody, and we hope you have a great week. Happy listening. And happy reading.